Lord, we come to you with hearts filled with thankfulness uh, for uh, this day, the day that you set aside um, before it was even uh, created. And we're grateful for the Lord's Day in general and for this Lord's Day in particular. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to be in this facility for a Sunday school class. And we pray that you would use it in our lives, that um, in our desire to learn, you would fertilize that, that you would deepen the roots of knowledge, and that it would, of course, produce godly spiritual fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've made our way now in our New Testament themes to the book of Galatians. Who's the author? There we go. Got to loosen up the crowd here a little bit. Yes, the Apostle Paul is the author of Galatians. Right there in the first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers are with me to the churches of Galatia. Very good. So, um, what I want to do though is we're going to go through a little exercise here together. So, as far as the dating, to get a sense of when this was written and to whom it was written as well. So, we're going to flip back and forth just a little bit here. But I've said this a few times, what book have we already talked about that serves kind of as the backdrop of the epistles that we continue to read? Very good. Thank you, Carol. So it's the book of Acts gives that historical account of all those missionary journeys that Paul went on where he's planting churches, and then it's subsequent to these different uh, journeys that he took and that are recorded in Acts that we then start to see these letters written to these churches. So um, with that in mind, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look within Galatians to see how we can know approximately when he authored this letter to the churches in Galatia. So one of the indicators then is if we look at Galatians 2 verses 1 to 10. I know this, is, uh, this might be asking too much, but I'll at least throw it out there. See if you can identify what event that is recorded in the book of Acts that he's referring to in chapter 2, and it starts at verse 1, and it continues through verse 10, but I'm not going to read all 10 verses. But um, right here where it says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And then that this section here that I'm referring to ends at verse 10 where it says, um, only they asked us to remember, uh, actually let me move up just a little bit. Uh, yeah. Okay, they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so this thing that he's writing about, this event of what he, he and Barnabas had done before, does anybody have a sense of what that event may have been? It's kind of a tough question. What, what were you saying? <laughs> See, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> that's right, that's right. And PJ must have said, I don't know, that was, what Sunday school series was that? How we got the Bible. How we got the Bible. You said, read the footnotes. Um, very good. So, what is the event then? You, you, uh, you said, what reference did you use? Acts 11 13. Hmm, okay, I have a different thing that I'm looking at, but so now I need to look at Acts 11 13 to see what that says. 11.30. See, it's already changing. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, that's just a... All right, that's not the actual event. But uh, so the significant event that took place was the Jerusalem Council. And so we, when we read what he's writing here, it matches up very nicely with the fact that um, he and Barnabas went and had this Jerusalem council. And do you remember the significance of the Jerusalem council? Why they had this council or what kind of came out of the council? Glenda? Do you have to say that again? Of course. <laughs> I, is it right before I go on? <laughs> well, um, there was an uproar from some Jews with the Gentiles over some of the Jewish laws, whether they needed to uh, practice them or not. So the Jerusalem Council uh, had a meeting and, and kind of ironed that all out. Yes. Um, I, actually, I think the main gist of it was prior to that issue, which is should the Gentiles be accepted at all? Should there be, should we be taking the gospel to the Gentiles or is this just our Jewish, should, should only the Jewish people be um, allowed to, to be Christians? And so that's where this whole discussion came up and then it's in the Jerusalem council then that Peter came in himself and said, hey, this is the experience that I had with Jews and Paul and Barnabas testify, and then it put it, remember they had this uproar, and then once Peter testified, then they all kind of got quiet, and then they, and they heard what had happened, and they realized, you know what? Gentiles are in too. And so God revealed that to them, and that was an important kind of uh, point in time in, in, uh, in history for the Christian church where there was a specific council that came together and the decision was made or it was revealed. They didn't make the decision. It was revealed to them the decision that God had made that the Gentiles would be included. So with that in mind and the purpose, that primary purpose of the Jerusalem council, now when you go back to Galatians 2 and you read again, then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking, up, uh, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation set before them, moving on down. I, uh, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. In other words, he wanted, uh, um, even though Paul felt convicted to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he didn't want to get ahead of God's plan or to be... Um, out there on his own championing his own cause. He needed to know that the church, that the apostles agreed with what he was doing, which, I mean, there's a whole sermon right there about confirming and making sure that you're not getting ahead of what uh, God is doing, even though it might be a good thing and you feel convicted about it. And so um, 
So Paul then takes that to the Jerusalem council. So what that does for us is that gives us a little marker because we know historically when the Jerusalem council took place, which was at approximately A.D. 49. So we look at this and we automatically go, okay, so we know this has to be after the Jerusalem council took place because he's writing about what took place at the Jerusalem council. And then the other thing that we can do is we can look and see, okay, to whom are the, is the letter addressed? And we see back in Galatians 1, down in verse 2, uh, that it's all the brothers are with me, and then it says, to the churches of Galatia. So if you turn back now, flip back with me to Acts chapter 13, Acts 13. So what happened, actually, I'll, I'll just point it out. You don't, we're not going to read from there, but the Jerusalem council takes place in Acts 15. So Jerusalem council is in Acts 15. And so if he's writing after the Jerusalem council, but he's writing two churches that he had already visited, then we turn back a little bit to see where he had been. And in fact, uh, if you want to look for a second at your uh, handout that I gave you, it says geographic outline of Acts. That's just a copy and paste from when I taught uh, the Sunday school on Acts. It's the same outline right there, the geographic outline. And so when we go, okay, we know he's writing about the Jerusalem Council right there on um, Roman numeral number four. And then we say, okay, well, if he's writing to churches that he had already visited, then you would move prior to that and see where it says first missionary journey of Paul, the northeast portion of the Mediterranean, and then it shows that it's chapters 13, uh, verse 1 through 14, 28. So with that in mind, I just want to show you how these things match up historically, geographically, they match up. So we just read how in Galatians, he writes to the churches in Galatia, and we already know historically that it's around the time that he's writing this, around the time of uh, the Jerusalem Council and reflecting back and writing to the churches he had already visited. So if you look at Acts 13 and go down to verses uh, 13 and 14, you start to see the cities that are where he established churches. So Acts 13, 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, just to be clear, I know this can get a little confusing, there's more than one Antioch. So I've mentioned before as well that but Paul, in all his journeys, starts out in Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria, right north of Jerusalem, and he does his loops, and he generally winds up back in Antioch of Syria. But at one of the points, he ends up at an Antioch in Pisidia. And so you see these names listed, Paphos, Perga, Pamphylia, uh, and then Antioch and Pisidia. And then also, if you go down into Acts 14, it starts out now at Iconium. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue. And then I'm going to move on down to chapter 14, verses 20 at 24. Then you again see the names of these cities. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. 
And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, with all of that in mind, look at the map that I've provided here. So see, we have from the geographic outline, you had the Jerusalem Council, and you move earlier and you go, okay. So that means he's writing to churches that are from the first missionary journey. And that missionary journey in Acts is named those different cities. And you can see the line there where it shows Italia and Perga and Pisidia. And see how it says Antioch? That's, that's, that's the Antioch of, uh, of Pisidia, not the Antioch of Syria. And Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And so you see all those. And do you notice then in larger letters through that area, it says Galatia. So I'm just, so I'm hoping to do a couple of things. One is, as I've mentioned before, even when you come to Galatians then, I'm hoping that you'll already think to yourself, okay, I know that there's been kind of a, a historical account that's been given to us, a geographic account, a narrative that lists where Paul has been, and now he has returned from this first missionary journey. He has been to the Jerusalem Council where he got formal approval by the apostles and the other disciples where they all realized, yes, this gospel needs to go to the Gentiles as well. And he has since the Jerusalem Council gone back up to Antioch where his journeys, Antioch of Syria, where his journeys uh, tend to begin up here. And from there, then he is writing a letter to the churches of Galatia, all of those things in southern Galatia there. So that way you have kind of a mental picture for it. It gives you, I think, I think it helps gives us uh, greater confidence in scripture too because we see these connections and that there's a, it, it's historically, there's historical continuity taking place. It all just kind of flows. And we see that Paul has gone through, started churches, and now he's writing to them to address particular issues. Now, as far as the actual makeup, the uh, demographics, if you will, of southern Galatia, they, uh, it's an urban and populated environment with both Jews and Gentiles, and his primary opponent were Judaizers, and those are the people that Glenda was just describing. So Judaizers are Gentile Christians, but that are still clinging or going back to Jewish customs, Jewish ceremonial laws, um, perhaps even um, Jewish uh, civil laws. And in particular, there, it kind of boils down to one of them, which is circumcision. And that's what Glenda was getting at, is that there are these people that though they are Christians, they were wanting to hang on to this old stuff. And those are the people, that is the issue that Paul heard about and is writing to overcome when he sends this letter to the churches in Galatia that he had begun. So this is what I want to do, is that I gave you on your handout there a, a um, outline, and again, that outline is not my product that came. You can see I put the, the source there <coughs> from the Kruger book, 
um, a biblical theology, biblical theological introduction to the New Testament. Uh, they are the author there came up with that outline. But what I want to do is I want us to walk through what these issues are in between the opening salutation and the closing words. So the first thing that I want to point out is what it is that is at issue. So you know the people, the Judaizers themselves, are the opponents that, that he, the, those are the, that's the group that he's refuting. But the question then is what is the actual issue? What has prompted him to write this letter? And we see the answer to that question in Galatians 1. He gets past the opening words, so Galatians 1, verses 6 to 10. And then let me go ahead and ask, Lori, would you read? mind reading Galatians 1, 6 to 10? Yeah. Uh, Galatians, Galatians 1, 6 to 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would What is, he's come right out of the gate with very strong language. What is the topic? What is the main issue that he's going to deal with? The true gospel. Ah, there we go. Bill says the true gospel. That's exactly right. It's the gospel message itself that's at stake. Um, and as Bill has said, the true gospel. And if we already know that the Judaizers are the ones that are causing the problems here, then what's happening is we have a gospel plus. They've taken the gospel, and they've accepted, theoretically accepted the gospel, but then added to it extra requirements. And he comes right out saying, it doesn't matter if it's a, an angel from heaven. It doesn't matter if it's me. There cannot be another gospel. So that's what is at stake. And he's saying that a gospel plus version is a false gospel. The only true gospel is the gospel that stands on its own two feet and exclusively on its own two feet. And what he does then is he goes about making an argument to support this point about the true gospel. So that's what I've provided then is places for you to fill in some blanks so that we can see, okay, how is it that Paul defends the gospel? What does he do? And so we see, first of all, um, who are you near, Mark? Uh, Let's see, first of all, what it is that Paul does in Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. Go ahead, Stephen. You want 11 11? Uh, yeah. For I would have you known, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now I persecuted the church, the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabah and returned again to Damascus. There, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, or Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Thank you, Stephen. So the, the, the blank there is he establishes himself as an expert witness. So even in today's courtroom, at least in the American courtroom, I can um, attest to this, is the only way that you are allowed to testify as an expert witness is to uh, be examined ahead of time, and they will have a separate hearing. They don't, they don't ask you questions to determine if you are an expert witness in front of the jury. They, they have it separately, and they ask you questions to determine, okay, do you have special knowledge in this area so that you can be qualified and called to be an expert. So in today's courtroom, you know, whether you're a DNA expert or a, um, a ballistics expert or something, then there has to be, you have to go on record. You can't just submit a resume ahead of time. You have to go on record and testify to your qualifications. And then it becomes the judge that then determines, okay, you qualify uh, the, as being called an expert. And then they provide them their expert testimony in the case. And what Paul is doing here is that very thing, is he begins his argument. He, so he says, it's the gospel that's at stake. And before I even get into the details of why, um, of what is, what is wrong here and what needs to take place, I want you to know that I qualify as an expert witness. And he goes through this account of his former life in Judaism and how actually he is the one that he himself persecuted the Jews and, you know, all of that. So he's laying out the argument that he is an expert witness. All right, then the thesis, and hopefully you noticed here is that uh, at the thesis, so that matches up with the outline there of Roman numeral uh, four. So the entirety, I'm, we're just going to pull a few verses out of each of these things. The entirety of his thesis then is laid out in chapter two, verses 15 to 21. But his thesis then is that justification is by faith alone. It does not include works. Justification is by faith alone, not by works. And 
uh, we see then, so in that uh, group of verses then, in this thesis is 2, 15 to 20, 21. Let me turn there. And we see uh, him make this argument in verses 15 to 21, and then you'll notice there that, uh, that he lays out what the alternative is. So he's making the argument that salvation is exclusively, that justification is exclusively in Christ. In fact, let's go ahead, let's go ahead and read that. Mark, go ahead and choose the lucky winner um, that can read verses 15 to 21. I'll read. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, so his thesis is that their, their justification is by faith alone, and then he adds uh, a couple little nuggets in there that help really drive the point home, one of them being uh, just a brief analogy at verse 18 where he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So he's pointing out the fact that if Christ came and he tore, he fulfilled these things and they have now been abrogated to include circumcision and other ceremonial laws, then to go back to them would make you a transgressor. It wouldn't make you saved plus, it would just make you saved, uh, possibly unsaved because you are now a transgressor. And then he goes on to illustrate what the alternative is down in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That, that, that's how this works. He's trying to point out, you, you can't do this. You have to leave the gospel alone. You can't add to the gospel because as soon as you add to the gospel, that alternative then means Jesus didn't do enough. And we can't do that. It, we, we don't gain ground by adding. We lose everything by adding. So the, the so the thesis is that justification is by faith alone and not by works. And then we see his argument, and he goes on to make an argument, which I'm saying is based on logic, and that logic is that the obedience that fulfilled all this, obedience is exclusively in Christ. So we saw that the thesis is that justification is by faith alone, and basically that faith is in the obedience that was exclusively accomplished by Christ. And that matches up then to the argument in uh, Roman numeral five of the outline there, the argument uh, that takes place in chapter three, verse one, all the way through 4.11. We're not gonna read all of those verses, but we are going to read, look in chapter three and we'll read verses 10 to 14. So chapter three, verses 10 to 14, go ahead. 
all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything within written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ received us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written. Cursed is everyone who is living on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay. What version are you reading? Okay. Um, I show cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, um, as opposed to living on a tree. But um, in any case, the point that he is making, so if you look back at um, verse 12, but the law that Bill read there, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So he's making the logical argument that if you are going in any way, in even one aspect, to enter in reliance on the law, if you're going to lean on that in the smallest way, you've got to take the whole thing. You don't get to enjoy salvation through Christ and then add in a little bit of law. If you're going to lean on the law, you've got to take the whole thing. The one who does them shall live by them. And then he goes on to demonstrate how it's Christ that, uh, that took that for us. And then, uh, Mark, if you would have someone give someone the mic, and we're going to read chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. So verse, chapter 3, tw uh, 23 to the end of the chapter. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through him, through, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How far did you want me to read? Uh, to the end of the chapter. Okay. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so the point that Paul is making here in relation to this, this whole deal with the law is that what you don't do, what you can't do, what would be sinful to do is to take the justification that you have now through Christ and to travel back in time and want to apply that in that legal setting. You know, it's fun to watch movies where um, somebody has the knowledge of the current age, you know, the current era, 
and then they travel back in time and they take like that knowledge with them back back in time and you're like you know medical knowledge and things like that people make movies out of those kinds of things and that's entertaining but we can't do that with our justification we don't take what Christ has earned for us through his obedience and then go back in time and find ourselves in the legal setting because again that is a entire commitment. If you're going to do that, then you're going to rely entirely on the law. And of course, there's nothing but guilt to be found in the law. The law itself always pointed forward to what Christ accomplished. And so as soon as you go back and want to lean on the law, you're going past Christ in a sense. You are eliminating Christ by saying, I want what Christ provided, but I want to be able to go back and take it with me into that legal environment. And um, that is, as he's making the point, that is illogical. Okay, our number uh, four there is the appeal and illustration. That was what um, Kruger's book put as the uh, Roman numeral six there. And we see the appeal and and illustration in Galatians four, verses 12 to 31. Uh, We're only gonna read a few verses out of there. But what we see here is now he, you know, he's making a great argument. He's authoring the letter. We know what's at, at stake. We have the gospel message. He lays it out that he's an expert witness. He makes it clear. His thesis is that justification is by faith and not by works, and, and that that faith is exclusively in Christ and not in any way within what the law has to offer. And then he moves on to give an actual illustration. He gives us uh, uh, something that they, he uses something that they would have been familiar with to demonstrate this idea of two different covenants being represented in two different people. So Mark, if you could have someone read, uh, we're gonna read chapter four, verses 28 to 31 of chapter four, yeah. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he was he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, so who are the two sons being used as examples that he is, he is he's making an analogy here, and who are the two sons? Because he's, he's made that reference here. He said, uh, you know, the, the, cast out the slave woman and her son, and the son of the slave woman, and then we also have this, the child of promise. Wayne. Uh, Ishmael versus uh, uh, Jacob? Isaac, Isaac, pardon me. Isaac, yeah. Isaac. Um, exactly, and those are the two. And so isn't this fascinating? as well, these are little nuances that fascinate me, is that Isaac is named. Isaac is a child, the child of promise and is named, and Ishmael isn't even named here. And there's significance to those things. When you deprive someone of their name, there's significance in that, and that just adds to the very message that Paul is illustrating. So he's already made these points that his thesis is that justification is by faith and not by works and that that faith is exclusively in Christ's obedience. And now he's making the point of, hey, remember the story, remember the oral history that has been passed down regarding Isaac and Ishmael. 
what did they have in common? That's right. They had the same father. They both had the same father, which was Abraham. But there was a very clear distinction that would, I think, was probably more prominent in their culture than it is, you know, in our culture. But he's making a very, very clear point, which is, yeah, they're both sons of Abraham, but one of them was the son of a slave woman, and one of them was a son of not just a free woman, but he is referred to as a child of promise. Because remember, Abraham and Sarah both received a promise that this was going to happen. And the only reason that Ishmael even enters the picture is actually a lack of faith, where Sarah, you know, here, take my maidservant and all that kind of stuff. Now, God does end up, because Abraham asks for it, and God does end up blessing Ishmael and, and everything. But when you think about what they represent, that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm giving you a, a visual here. This is their flannel, the flannel graph, right, the flannel board, and saying, okay, here's Ishmael and here's Isaac. One of them is distinctly different. One of them is based completely in God's providence. He was promised ahead of time. He was given in, in Abraham and Sarah's old age. Everything came through him exactly the way that it was supposed to. And over here we have this other line of what happens when you try to take matters into your own hands. And so all of those things are being communicated in a story-like fashion by pointing to these two people and those two lines. Were you, uh, Mark, could you? So you have Isaac and Ishmael, and the setup here is between um, present Jerusalem and heavenly Jerusalem. So you have the Jerusalem above that is free, and that's you brothers who are, you know, the sons of not only Abraham but of Isaac. But present Jerusalem would be a son of Ishmael. So you have these Jews. So it's not just, okay, Isaac, Ishmael, we're looking at it today. Um, Paul's hitting hard and saying that, yeah, you may be children of Abraham in the flesh, right. but that also means that in reality, you're children of Ishmael. They would have never have put up with that. No, we're Abraham. The good, the good uh, one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he's saying no. But Gentiles are sons of Isaac, <laughs> but the Jews are sons of Ishmael. So he's, he's drawing this distinction, um, an important one, mm -hmm. uh, a very dangerous one. Amen. And then it closes here, uh, the fifth point, the exhortation. So it lines up with that Roman numeral 7, exhortation, chapters 5, uh, Galatians 5, 1 to 6, 10. And that the exhortation is then, in my words, don't put the chains back on. That's what he's, it, after he makes his whole argument, so, because remember, he's writing to the church. So he's telling the people that um, have trusted in Christ not to return to that, not to put the chains back on. So uh, do you still have the mic, Rob Roy, or, okay, whoever. Um, chapter five, let's just read the first six verses. For freedom Christ has set us free Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, again to every man who accepts circumcision that is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so see how he's rounding this out and then telling them the, the final way to look at this is do not return back to those chains. If they accept circumcision, they're shackling themselves. And then, uh, in fact, at the end, uh, toward the end of that chapter at, at uh, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And um, that is his you know, positive exhortation after this kind of reprimand um, or polemic, you know, the strong teaching against this uh, false gospel that had been going out. So that's the content of uh, Galatians, how it lays out, who he's writing to, the timing of him writing. The one other thing I just wanted to make is it's kind of separate in a sense I wanted to comment on is in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, because this really ties all of this directly <laughs> to us, is uh, in, in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, he recounts when he opposed, had to oppose Peter. So now that you've got the geography and kind of the, um, the storyline, he went on, Paul went on his first missionary journey. He ends up, um, he ends up going to the Jerusalem council. So obviously the Jerusalem council takes place in Jerusalem. He returns back up to where he's starting, his starting point, which is Antioch in Syria. And so while he's up there, Peter comes up to where Paul is at Antioch. See, it says at verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And what we had was, was Peter got essentially um, scared of the opinions of these Judaizers that also were there. And all of a sudden, even though he had spoken strongly at the Jerusalem Council in favor of the Gentiles, and even though he had been associating himself personally with the Gentiles and bringing the gospel to Gentiles, all of a sudden he was staying separate from them and didn't want to be identified with them in this other environment. And Paul is recounting how he had to oppose Peter in that environment. So in one sense, of course, it, it continues to bolster the argument that Paul is making throughout this, that there is no justification in the law and that he was willing to even call out the apostle Peter. But the other thing that I, I wanted to just point this out is that maybe we're, we would have a tendency to look at an account like that and kind of think, almost be embarrassed for Peter, you know, like, man, or look down on him or something like, come on, man, you can't, you know, show loving kindness to a particular group of people and then, and then stop doing that. How unkind and how rude is that? But the point that Paul makes here essentially is that, do you realize that he's communicating it to the churches that he's writing because of what took place with Peter and what he was saying was that if you, Peter, could not keep the law, don't put that burden 
on other people. And this is a reminder to us that we too have a pharisaical heart. We just have this bent to say, thank you, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness that you've done all this for me. But at the same time, we always want to creep over towards legalism and laws and people, you know, looking at other people that are breaking, uh, breaking rules. And so we too want to look at what happened with Peter and not say, I can't believe you do that, Peter, but say, man, I need to, I, I, I very much could do exactly what Peter did and, pro and probably have, and I need to repent of that and, and um, um, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time. Thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. May it uh, enliven these truths in our hearts. Lord, we pray for your extra measure of blessing on the service we get to enjoy together with our church family in a few minutes. In Christ's name, amen.